Our New Testament scripture reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. From there he, Jesus, set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I'm guessing what grabbed your attention in this passage in Mark is the same verse that startles me every time I read it. Jesus compares a woman to a dog. We expect better from Jesus, don't we? It makes me want to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do here, Jesus? Except what Jesus would do, apparently, what he does do, is so appalling. What's going on here? Let's start at the beginning. Jesus is fresh from a confrontation with some Pharisees over the traditional Jewish purity laws. Those are the laws that define what is considered clean and what is considered unclean. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being hypocrites who care more about their own traditions than the intention behind God's commandments. After this, Jesus needs a break. He sets off for Tyre to get some alone time. Tyre is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, north of Galilee, in present-day Lebanon. It was a region inhabited by Gentiles, pagans, non-Jews. So Jesus has left the land and people who are clean to enter a land that is unclean. Jesus doesn't find the solitude he seeks. Almost as soon as he arrives in Tyre, a Gentile woman kneels at his feet, begging him to heal her daughter. It should be no surprise to him that he's encountering Gentiles. It'd be like going to New York City and then wondering why you have to put up with so many New Yorkers. Jesus refuses the woman, quoting an old proverb that says, a mother must care for her children before, caring, before paying attention to the household pets. I wish I could tell you that in the original Greek or in the context of first century Middle Eastern culture, Jesus is not insulting this woman. But I can't. Because then as now, comparing someone to a dog is rude. I ran across a long joke comparing men to dogs. 
It begins with some pretty innocuous comparisons, like both have irrational fears of vacuum cleaning. <laughs> but then it goes on at length to say how dogs are preferable to men, because, for example, after a year, the dog is still excited to see you. <laughs> with the final comparison being that at least you can train a dog. Really, things you could say just as easily about women, as well as men, and neither men nor women would appreciate. The point is that the joke is insulting. We might love our pets, or Boxer Weasley as a member of our family, but no one wants to be compared to or treated like a dog. So is Jesus suffering from burnout because of the conflict with the Pharisees? Is this a glimpse at a very human Jesus? How we understand this story does turn on our understanding of the humanity of Jesus, but it has less to do with the fact that he may or may not have been in a bad mood than it has to do with his being a creature of his culture. As racist as it sounds, Jesus' response to the woman reflects the common understanding at the time that Jews would come first, that Jesus would bring his message first to the Jews, and later it would reach Gentiles. And in a traditional cultural sense, the woman is way out of line. Normally asking for help for a family would be a man's prerogative. Yet this woman boldly speaks up for her daughter to Jesus, a man, a stranger, and a Jew, who would normally perceive her as inferior and unclean because she's a woman and a pagan. Jesus' sharp retort reflects his surprise that she's done something shameful. If the woman is offended, she doesn't let it show. We can almost hear her say, call me whatever you want. I love my daughter so much, I'll be a dog. But her response also contains a challenge. We all eat the same food. Why shouldn't we all be at the same table? For centuries, commentators have tried to soften this story by saying Jesus doesn't really have such an ugly prejudice. He's just testing her. She passes, and so her daughter is healed. But this would make the woman the only person who has to pass the test of being the object of a racial slur before receiving Jesus' mercy. That just doesn't work for me. I am convinced that this woman changed Jesus' mind, that Jesus learned something from her. And that, all by itself, is huge. God didn't send Jesus into the world as an adult. He sent him, God sent him as a baby who grew and developed and learned from people and about people, just as we do. One answer to that cliched but nevertheless always relevant question, what would Jesus do, is Jesus learned. Jesus changed his mind. In Mark's Gospel, when Jesus discovers that what he thought he knew isn't true, he has to change his opinion. It's also huge that he had to change his opinion about his interpretation of Scripture. The Jews treated non-Jews as unclean 
because that's what they believed God intended based on their reading of Scripture. This puts Jesus squarely in the same spot as the Pharisees he's just rebuked. And it is a challenge to contemporary Christians whose approach to Scripture is reflected in a popular bumper sticker. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. The Gentile woman in this story reminds us that we can't assume anything is settled. We can't assume that an interpretation of Scripture from a couple of generations ago is still faithful today. We are called to continue to read and interpret Scripture, trusting that the Holy Spirit can do new things and will open up insights and especially new ways to remind us that no one is outside the embrace of God. And it is huge as well that what Jesus learned here is that God's welcome transcends not only the Pharisees' cultural prejudices, but his own. The story affirms that there is no human condition that is a boundary between God and human beings, and so there should be no barrier between human beings. The story pushes us to think about who it is in our culture, in our world, and most particularly in our church. Who are those that are only getting the crumbs while we make sure others are fed a full meal? Where are we being called to include someone who is now excluded? Where are we being called to have a change of heart? Dean Seal tells a story about a Sunday at the downtown Atlanta church of his childhood. It was a communion Sunday, and because they rarely celebrated communion in that church, there was a tendency to overcompensate and turn the sacrament into an unusually solemn and formal occasion. There were special chairs set up at the front of the sanctuary, and the elders marched in at the beginning of the service, all wearing their best suits and dresses, and sat down in unison in these special chairs where they stayed throughout the service until communion. When the time came, the pastor said the communion prayers and finished by raising his arms and looking out over the congregation, saying something like, Come to Christ's table, all you who are hungry, and feed on the bread of life. It was intended as a cue to the elders to get up and serve communion. But as soon as the pastor said this, a homeless man who didn't know the routine lurched forward from a pew, stumbled down the aisle, grabbed a handful of the neatly cut squares of bread out of one of the plates sitting on the communion table and stuffed them in his mouth. There were gasps and whispers and murmurs and heads whirling around to see who was going to handle the situation. Sure enough, one of the elders stood up, walked over and spoke to the man, taking him by the arm. But then he led them, led the man to the front and sat him right down there with the other elders in the special seats at the front of the sanctuary. He stayed there with the man for the rest of the service. And the man was the first one served before the elders went out to the rest of the congregation. The congregation learned later what the elder had said to the man. I know you're hungry, he whispered. Here, have a seat up here with us and don't worry. There's enough for everybody. 
will bring it right to you. The elder had realized the truth. This man was hungry. He had come to the church. He had been invited to Christ's table. He needed to be served. Those facts overrode any concerns about the man's dress, his hygiene, or his mental health, all of which were poor. It overrode any of the commitments to the limits of order, of tradition, of propriety, all of which had been violated. But the man was welcomed as a neighbor, and he received love. Mr. Seal says he can't remember what the sermon was about that day, but he remembers the man and the elder and the gospel in action, in flesh and blood, in all the inconvenience and awkwardness and even fear, and in all the surprising and limitless beauty of God's mercy and grace and radical hospitality. Here at First Presbyterian Church of San Anselmo, we really do strive to be an inclusive community. It's a tagline that we use on all of our communications, and we take it very seriously. But Mark's gospel pushes us to ask ourselves, what is it we still need to learn about inclusion? Who is it that we are not seeing, not noticing for whatever reason? Maybe because we don't want to be bothered with something unpleasant or that's too much work, or maybe because we're just not looking. Just as it was in noticing exactly who the Syrophoenician woman was, that Jesus could show how expansive God's inclusion is. It was in being confronted with the troubled man's condition that the Atlanta elder became an instrument of God's welcoming grace. New story is right under our noses, waiting to confront us. Those are the people that we need to include. I can think of a handful of such stories. Folks who aren't familiar with how we worship, who don't know our jargon or which hymnal to grab or when to come forward for communion or what to do and say when they get there. Our Korean brothers and sisters from the seminary who so often worship with us, too often we allow the language barrier to get in the way of a full welcome. Young people including some of our own young people, who, whether we like it or approve of it or not, don't think that going to church is very cool. The people who will vote for the other candidate in the presidential election. And, there, and then there's a young man that I'll call Fred, not his real name, who was introduced to me last, last Sunday during coffee hour. He looked about 18, and he hadn't been at worship. He just showed up for coffee hour asking questions. He said his sister had become a Christian, and so he wanted to know more about it. He asked questions that are painful to me because they point to a common cultural assumption that Christianity is mostly about what happens to people after they die. Questions that revealed his understanding that we worship a God who is intolerant and judgmental rather than loving and accepting, that we practice a faith 
that is more about looking pious than love in action. I don't know how we go about including Fred and people like him because they don't usually wander into coffee hour or into worship. What I do know is that we need to see them, to know that they exist and that they deserve our attention. I invite you to join me in thinking creatively about this, in learning together about how to respond to this. Because Jesus did not and does not offer himself as the bread of life to some of God's children and as leftover crumbs under the table to others. Today we celebrate with the Barrel House Jazz Band and our annual barbecue after worship. We celebrate the start of a new Sunday school year and the return of the chancel choir and the beginning of many of the ministries that take a break over the summer. And we celebrate something even more important. We celebrate that we are all on a learning curve and that we are in good company with our Lord Jesus Christ in that. One thing Jesus knew and shows us again and again is that sharing a meal with people is one of the most powerful classrooms that there is for learning to notice people. Our barbecue is not the sacrament of communion, but it is what we call table fellowship. The words of one of our communion hymns still apply. As Christ breaks bread and bids us share, each proud division ends. The love that made us makes us one, and strangers now are friends. Join us for lunch today. It's free. Everyone is invited. And you can be sure that we won't be eating just crumbs. Please pray with me. God of grace, we pray that we will keep on learning. Guide us in that endeavor together as your community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.